Uh, welcome to the Mahogany Tower, where we talk about faith, we talk about science, we talk about sociocultural identity. Not necessarily in that order, though. Just kind of depends on the day and, you know, what's, what's on deck. Anyway, um, I don't know if you know this, but I love doing seasonal content for the Mahogany Tower. I really do, and I look forward to it every single year. Um, you know, it started, I think, in February, I guess this was 2018, and I did a piece called Big Black Women and the Men They Fall in Love With. And that piece got, uh, I think, like 100 hits in like less than 24 hours or some stuff like that. No hate mail, right? So that that's, that's a good thing. Uh, but it was a lot of fun to talk about big black women and, they, and the men they fall in love with. Um, it's, you know, still on the, uh, the website if it's something that you're interested in. Uh, in 20, what, 19? February 2019, I did, um, money, marriage, misogyny, and melanin, right? Um, if you know me, you know I love the alliteration. And so I, uh, did money, marriage, misogyny, and melanin, lots of things that I was kind of interested in and kind of, uh, turning over in my head, um, but again, more seasonal content. Last year, this was February 2020, um, I did Black Queens, right? So doing a piece about Black womanhood, even though I am not a Black woman, uh, but doing a tribute to the amazingness and awesomeness of being a Black woman, something that explicitly, explicitly needs to be uh, commended for lots of reasons. And you know, you can listen to that piece if that's something that you're interested in. Um, so it's February, uh, you know, MLK Day was last month, and this month we have Black History Month, and we have uh, Valentine's Day. I love doing seasonal content. I do it every single year. Um, and what I thought we'd do this year, you know, for February, is keep things spicy. Now, I don't know how you feel about spicy, but... Uh, I'm West African, so I love keeping things spicy. Um, this month, we're talking about interracial dating. In fact, we're doing a series on interracial dating within the church. But again, I'm big on alliteration, so uh, I'm calling it colorblind Christian courtship. Now, I thought about throwing cringy in there, because if I'm honest, that is kind of how I feel about it, but uh, I didn't want to do that. Um, I decided to go with colorblind Christian courtship. So that is what we have. And this is part one. Um, and honestly, I think this, the series is long overdue. Um, I think in general, being a follower of any religion provides opportunities to marry other people uh, from that faith tradition, even people of other you know, racial and ethnic backgrounds. Now, that's true. But churches in America don't really have a good track record of race relations. And we see that kind of with, you know, slavery. We see that with, you know, involvement with white supremacy. We see that with uh, Jim Crow and segregation um, and, and other things as well in the state. So churches in America don't really have a great track record with race relations. And I fear, or I guess I'm concerned with, their misinterpretation. I'm concerned that they're misinterpreting what interracial relationships in their congregation mean, assuming they mean anything at all. And again, I concede that they may not. 
Um, you know, in my experience, most churches have some level of racial diversity. Excuse me. So most churches that have some level of racial diversity are quite proud of it, right? Um, and in fact, in light of the fact that most American churches are fairly racially homogenous, it is quite the accomplishment to break that trend on some level. That's something worth being proud of. I mean, I think, I think that's absolutely reasonable. Um, now, the leaders in these congregations, interracial marriages and romantic relationships are resounding proof that racism is an artifact of the past. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. Just a little bit presumptuous, but let's let's stay on topic. Um, now, if it manifests, and again, this is I think the train of thought. If it manifests in the present, it manifests outside the walls of the church. Within the church, on the other hand, God's people can exist in colorblind utopia where ethnic and racial background is of little consequence or little importance. Race and ethnicity. Uh, don't influence how we see or treat each other, and it doesn't really influence how Christians see, engage, or participate in the world at large. Now, again, those don't re reflect my views. I just think that's kind of the overarching sentiment. But in general, this uh, represents a colorblind diversity ideology. This like train of thought, this pattern of thinking, this system of logic, it represents a colorblind diversity ideology. And you know, elsewhere on the podcast, if you uh, look at my series on, uh, what did I call that thing? Unideal church ideals. I basically talk about how in a three-part series, these, um, you know, platitudes about not seeing race can actually undermine our inclusion goals, uh, you know, as, as congregations in really important and material ways. Um, but if that interests you, you can, you know, go find Unideal Church Ideals Part 1, Part 2, Part 3. It's um, still there. But I'll get to my thesis, right? Because I, I get distracted sometimes. I'm concerned this colorblind ideology, this colorblind diversity ideology, contributes to some grossly distorted ideas of what interracial relationships may signal in congregations. That's my thesis, no more, no less. Now, admittedly, we can boil this down to an ignorance of the topic of race relations. I think people, myself included, misinterpret things when uh, we're not thinking deeply and critically about it. To be sure, I don't think these individuals have malicious intentions per se, at least not most of them. I just think people are being, I just think people aren't being particularly thoughtful. And in this case, I think it may lead to sweeping conclusions that aren't really warranted based on the pattern of interracial dating. Assuming there's a pattern at all. Again, there may not be one. Fortunately, though, we have science to help us figure all this out. We'll need a few different areas of research. From the dating perspective, we'll need some of the work in psychology, um, the psychology of intimate relationships. Now, sociologists and economists also study dating. They study something called assortative mating, where they basically build these very complex 
quantitative models basically trying to figure out who goes first in the dating market, who goes first in the dating pool, who gets chosen first. Is it the rich person? Is it the poor person? Is it the middle class person? Is it, you know, the white person, the black person? Like, they do that. We're not going to uh, be looking at the work on assortative mating, even though it's really cool. We're going to look at the psych research instead, the research in the field of psychology. Um, importantly, though, to understand, that's the dating piece, right? Importantly, though, to understand interracial dating, we'll also need to leverage the research in social psychology on race relations, right? So we're bringing in stuff on dating. We're also bringing in stuff on race relations. Both of this, most of this anyway, is uh, research in psychology, but there's also some research in uh, sociology we'll talk about too. Um, personally, I find it a little bit strange that the research on race relation has progressed pretty independently of the research on dating, but that probably speaks to the notion that most people see these as separate topics when in fact they're actually related in important ways. Now there's been a unique framework that's been emerging to study race by sex identities in the field of psychology, and it's called gendered race. Now, the theory goes a little something like this. It's no surprise that there are stereotypes associated with racial identities. There's also no surprise that there are stereotypes associated with gender identities. But gendered race as a framework makes the unique point that race-related stereotype content isn't gender neutral. Say that point again. Gendered race as a framework makes the unique point that race-related stereotype content isn't gender neutral. So for instance, black Americans are stereotyped as being loud, aggressive, physically imposing, dominant, and even dangerous. Now, if you notice though, the traits I listed are viewed by society, society as more appropriate and common for men than women. Men are expected to be loud, they're expected to be aggressive, they're expected to be physically imposing or dominant, maybe even dangerous, right? So those traits are viewed by society as more appropriate for men than women. But that's the stereotype concept for black people. So in other words, black Americans have masculine stereotype concept, right? Similarly, Asian Americans are usually stereotyped as being submissive, quiet, small, and or weak. Again, you may notice that these traits are viewed by society as more appropriate and common for women than men. Women are, you know, they're supposed to be submissive, they're supposed to be quiet, they're supposed to be small, they're supposed to be weak. In other words, Asian Americans have feminine stereotype content. Now remember, we're talking about stereotypes. I never said that black Americans are more masculine than other Americans. I never said Asian Americans are more feminine than other Americans. These are stereotypes. Stereotypes are exaggerated beliefs about a particular group of people whether positive or negative. And in the case of black Americans, the content of the stereotype tends to be mostly masculine. In the case of Asian Americans, the content of the stereotype tends to be mostly 
feminine. Now, in case you're wondering, there's a huge piece on culture too that I don't even have time to get into. But it's true that some cultures may be viewed as more masculine versus more feminine. And that has implications for gendered race as well. In short though, based on the theory of gendered race, both gender and race play an important role in how we perceive people and the level of femininity and masculinity that we ascribe to them, right? Now, it's hardly a novel concept for most people that gender influences how feminine or masculine that we're perceived to be. But in the mid-90s or so, most social scientists were surprised to hear that our race plays an important role in people kind of deciding how feminine or masculine uh, they think we are. Specifically for men, the research in gendered race shows the following. Black men are perceived as extremely masculine because they're men and the stereotype content for being black is masculine, right? Asian men are perceived as extremely unmasculine. Another way of thinking about that is basically calling them feminine because they're men, but the stereotype content for being Asian is feminine. Now, white men generally fall in the middle. They're perceived as more masculine than Asian men, but less masculine than black men. Now, the research findings also show the corollary for women. Asian women are perceived as extremely feminine because they're women, and the stereotype content for being Asian is feminine. Black women are viewed as extremely unfeminine. Another way of reading that is masculine because they're women, but the stereotype content for being black is masculine. White women generally fall in the middle. They're viewed as more feminine than black women, but less feminine than Asian women. And again, there's research kind of showing this is how people perceive men and women of other groups, uh, racial groups. Unfortunately, the gendered race literature hasn't investigated other racial groups, as far as I know anyway. Um, albeit, I have some thoughts on what this could potentially mean in other contexts. So for instance, I know 18% of people in the United States are Hispanic. We don't really have any uh, gendered race uh, research looking at Hispanic Americans. Obviously a really important need, but science is kind of falling short in that way. But if you're particularly astute on this topic, right, then you're probably already making some downstream con connections. So if heterosexual men prefer a feminine partner, and if heterosexual women prefer a masculine partner, does gendered race influence interracial dating? Like, is it possible that being seen as more or less masculine based on your racial group, like, does that influence interracial dating? And the answer is a resounding yes. Now, although to the best of my knowledge, this hasn't been tested among non-white Americans, the theory has been used to investigate interracial dating among white Americans. Specifically, the researchers found that white men 
were significantly more likely to date an Asian woman than a black woman. And white women were significantly more likely to date a black man than an Asian man. Now, to be sure, this wasn't simply a matter of correlation, right? They followed by investigating the mechanism. In other words, we find these relationships in science and we try and figure out why did I observe this pattern in my data, right? So you do something called mediation analysis, you test different mechanisms, you try and figure out the why. What explains the relationship between variable X and variable Y? Well, that's kind of confusing. Uh, variable A and variable B. What explains the relationship that I observe between these variables? So the researchers found that preference for masculinity explained the results that they found. Specifically, white men with a lower preference for masculinity, or in other words, femininity, in their partners adjusted their dating behavior accordingly. And white women did the same thing. When they uh, preferred a more masculine partner, they adjusted their dating behavior. And it resulted in, in them picking uh, men of different racial groups. So one implication of that evidence is, yes, interracial dating is on the rise. But there's also evidence that stereotypes still play a particularly important role in interracial dating. To me, that's probably one of the more compelling pieces of evidence, um, although there's certainly other evidence collectively that suggests more of the same. Now, I'll preface this by saying what follows represents a synthesis of a larger body of evidence across different programs of research in different fields. So let's hop into it. For the last 200 plus years, sociologists have been studying various forms of structural inequality, right? Um, it's kind of what you do if you're a sociologist. You study inequality. That's like literally 40% of the field. They study Lots and lots and lots of inequality. And I mean, it's good that they're doing that because there's a lot of it. Uh, you study it in healthcare, you might study it in education, you might study it in policy, or you might study it in organizations or in finance or in neighborhoods or whatever. Inequality is a very important topic in sociology. You care about the outcomes of inequality, right? But you also care about the antecedents of inequality. What things predict inequality? Like what things tend to predict where inequality will manifest or where it'll take place? Like how do we predict when inequality is going to happen, right? Now, consequentially, one of the things sociologists have argued is this notion of racial hierarchy. In other words, at this point, it's not a revolutionary idea that America tends to be white-centric they bring things that are white over things that are non-white. Like that's not a revolutionary argument in any way, shape or form. This has been demonstrated numerous times across different fields in the social sciences. So management and sociology and psychology and economics, like it's not a revolutionary idea, I promise. But many sociologists believe there's an added layer to that. There's a racial hierarchy. Not all racial and ethnic groups in society are viewed positively or positively at all, really. I think that's certainly implied with language surrounding Asian immigrants as the model minority because it basically 
<laughs> it basically means that like we want all of our minorities to demonstrate their kind of behavior, right? So Asian Americans are viewed as hardworking and industrious and great at math and science and having generally high aptitude. Again, remember, these are stereotypes, albeit these are positive stereotypes rather than negative ones. Uh, many Americans have similar thoughts about Jews as well. Oh my gosh, they're like brilliant and successful. They have all this money. They own all the property in New York. Like, again, different people of various racial and ethnic groups may be viewed differently according to this like racial hierarchy that sociologists are talking about. Um, so sociologists believe that this racial hierarchy contributes to stratification in American society. In general, white Americans and other white passing racial minorities, so people who aren't necessarily white, but they look white, these are people that are at the top, followed by Asian Americans, followed by Hispanic Americans, and then black Americans are at the very bottom. Now, I realize there are other racial and ethnic groups, but I do wanna be true to the research in this area. And so these groups, these scholars tend to focus on the largest racial and ethnic groups in American society. So they generally focus on white, black, Asian, and Hispanic, right? Now the question is, if I've received implicit signals over the course of 20, 30, or even 40, a 40 year lifetime, that people of various racial and ethnic groups vary in their social standing. Does that influence who I'm attracted to and who I'm most interested in dating? I'll read it again, right? If, if I've received implicit signals over the course of my entire lifetime, 20, 30, 40 years, that people of various racial or ethnic groups vary in their social standing, does it influence who I'm attracted to and who I want to date? Now, I think most social scientists, myself included, I'll put myself in there, I think most social scientists across fields of study would answer with a resounding yes, right? But I think lots of American Christians seem to be convinced otherwise. I think for the most part, they're well-intended, but I also think that confidence is grossly misguided. That's like if I tell a woman, I know sexism is real, and it's played a big role throughout history, not just American history, but global history, but it doesn't influence any of my attitudes or behaviors in any way, shape, or form. Now, I don't know for sure, but I can't help but imagine a lot of women would find my overconfidence a bit concerning. Like, if I'm that confident that sexism doesn't affect my behavior in any way, shape, or form, it's almost like that's an indication that I'm not all that red on the topic, right? Because anybody who's well-informed on the topic, even women, will tell you the effects are really widespread. And you literally spend a lifetime trying to unpack it. I mean, you think one thing about women, but every day, 
you're confronted with a really different reality in society based on what you see in work and what you see in the media and just like you're you're just literally hammered with it so you can desire to be equitable but still find yourself falling prey to various biases and that doesn't mean oh my gosh you're this evil and terrible person it just means you're human and obviously you know amen we want to repent and be in our bible and all these things we don't just shuck responsibility but amen we're human we fall short and we need to be honest about that now, that's how I tend to feel about people who are convinced that race and ethnicity, et cetera, doesn't influence who they're attracted to or pursue relationships with in any way, shape, or form. Even if you are well-read, if you honestly believe something as complex as how you see the world and the people in it isn't shaped or influenced by external forces as powerful as white supremacy, colorism, discrimination, prejudice, et cetera, uh, then I can't help but feel like there's a little bit of a disconnect. I want to be clear. I'm not here to beat up on other people. I'm not. I've had my own journey with this, and it's an ongoing process. Now, elsewhere, you may recall I did this piece, um, can't even remember the year, but uh, it's called Nigeria Americanism and Double Consciousness. And in that, I describe how, as a Nigerian immigrant, <clears throat> I was strongly encouraged throughout my youth to date and marry a Nigerian woman. And if not a Nigerian woman, at least an African woman, they would say, right? I had some important downstream consequences. Now, the first big consequence was I was actually pretty put off from the idea of dating a Nigerian or African woman. Now, keep in mind, this was several years ago. Um, I've come around since. But throughout my youth, absolutely, I was very put off from the idea of dating a Nigerian or African woman. I don't like feeling controlled. I don't like feeling like my decisions are being made by others. The more I felt expected and encouraged to date a Nigerian or African woman, the more resistant I became to the idea. Fact. That's what happened, right? To me, excuse me, for me, this rejection was an act of rebellion. So based on that rebellion... You may have seen me in an interracial relationship and assumed I'm this progressive, multicultural person, but in actuality, I was just rebelling against this expectation to have an African partner. I was rebelling. But it gets really deep really quick. You may also recall, again, same piece, Nigeria-Americanism and double consciousness. You may recall... Uh, me talking about my journey with my heritage and culture over the course of my life. I grew up hating being Nigerian. I did. I was teased all the time about my name. I was teased about my accent or lack thereof. I didn't really have an accent. I just grew up in the South and I pronounced all my words correctly. So where I came from, that was kind of seen as weird. Uh, but they teased me about my accent or lack thereof. The way I, the way I spoke was just kind of strange and funny, I guess. Um, 
I was teased about food and culture and literally anything and everything because I was African, right? So you may think that this mistreatment would have driven me to want to be with an African woman. I mean, surely an African woman would understand me, right? Ironically, it had the opposite effect. I had such a disdain for my culture, I actually wanted to distance myself from it as much as I could. Not surprisingly, that influenced who I saw myself marrying down the road. I literally hated where I came from. I did. Why would I permanently hitch myself to a culture that's done nothing but gotten me teased and ridiculed? You know, that's what I was thinking to myself. Now, what I actually need to do is assimilate. Coincidentally, this is consistent with research in psychology on intergroup relations. Uh, this is a body of work that studies prejudice and discrimination. And one of the arguments that they make is that many racial minorities elect to assimilate to avoid being othered in society. Now, by assimilate, I simply mean they suppress their racial or ethnic identity to draw less attention to themselves and be accepted by the dominant group, white Americans. So in my case, that meant that all I had to do is one, marry a white woman, or two, marry a racial minority that had better social standing than an African woman. So for instance, an Asian woman. Again, although this hasn't been studied in the context of romantic relationships, as far as I know, I've looked, I can't really find much on it. My impressions as I discuss this with my friends who are first-generation immigrants generally supports the idea. It seems that a lot of immigrant parents expect their children to either, one, marry someone from their own culture, right? Or two, to marry someone white. The former is generally preferred, and it ensures that children will always remember where they come from. And as an immigrant, that's something that's really important to you. The latter, however, seems to be an implication of racial hierarchy. It's really strange, but for a lot of immigrant parents that are in their 50s or 60s or 70s, it's almost like the telltale sign of being a true American is if your son or daughter marries someone white. Now, admittedly, as an immigrant, that's one of your biggest dreams. You want to be accepted by white people. You want their approval. You want their respect. You want them to view you as a peer. You want them to see you as one of their own rather than seeing you as a foreigner. All of these are consistent with the argument on assimilation. It also means that interracial relationships don't emerge purely at random, especially if there are influences in the background that have been implicitly or explicitly shaping who we should be uh, with throughout our past and maybe even our present. But it's interesting though, because not only was I encouraged to date women of a particular racial or ethnic background when I was young, but I was also actively <laughs> discouraged 
from dating women of a particular racial or ethnic background as well. I'll be honest with you. I grew up in a household that had some anti-black sentiment. Straight up. I don't think that'll come as a shock to any black people, but I'm sure that'll come as a shock to a lot of white people and maybe some non-black people too. For a lot of you, Black Panther was your first uh, inside look at the black community. Although I could say much here about the film and how it pertains to anti-black sentiment, I'll sum it up with the following. African and Caribbean people know where they come from. And because black Americans don't, because of slavery, right? Many in the former group frown on those in the latter group. Now it's complex and it's wrong and I'm oversimplifying it, but I'd be lying if I told you I didn't have some anti-black sentiment in my household growing up. I did. If you're gonna date someone who's not African, you at least need to date someone with culture, they would say. And in other words, they're basically saying black people don't have culture. Um, they also mentioned some other things about black people that I'm not going to put here. Um, I just don't think that'll be helpful. Um, the implications were quite simple though. Don't date black women. It was both implicit and explicit. And it was quite vivid. I'm a grown man, and I still remember. Now, if I experienced all this in a Nigerian household, um, I know for a fact that happens in other households. I don't think my experience was that unique or strange. Like, it happens. And looking back on it, it definitely makes me sad. Now, as I came into my adulthood and I formed my own opinions about the person I wanted to be and how I wanted to view and treat people, I had to unpack a lot of anti-Black sentiment. And this is coming from someone who grew up in a mostly Black town and had mostly Black friends. You can be friends with someone and still see them as less than. That's a whole different conversation. And I don't even have time to get into that but you can be friends with someone and still see them as less than. Now, what's most interesting about all of this is I've had a lot of things throughout my youth that would have spurred me to pursue interracial relationships for all of the wrong reasons. True story. And it's interesting because all of these ministers could use me and as an example of how progressive their ministry is and how I'm a great example of how to be colorblind when dating and, and all this other stuff. And they may never stop for a second and ask the most obvious question, I think, to me, is interracial dating a good measure of the racial climate or racial inclusivity of a church congregation? Like, is that really a good measure for doing what you're trying to do? I think most social scientists, and even lots of people who aren't social scientists, would answer that question with a resounding no. That's not a good measure. Like, if you're really interested in that, use a, use a measure that's going to be useful. Like, that's not a good measure for, for determining racial climate or racial inclusivity. I mean, maybe it's a signal, but, like, that is not a good measure. 
whatever reason, though, lots of these ministers haven't really gotten the memo. Um, perhaps one of the most <laughs> strange, unusual, and dare I say perverted aspects of all of this is what I describe next. Um, maybe the, may, I mean, maybe this is just my general impression. Again, maybe I'm wrong. Um, but I feel like there's this notion in the church that we need these people in interracial relationships to lead our diversity and inclusion efforts. Because these are the people who see both sides. These are the people who have conquered their racial biases or have at least made substantial progress in doing so, right? They're, they're in an interracial relationship. Now, never mind everything that I just shared indicating that people may end up in interracial relationships for lots of different reasons, including but not limited to white supremacy, stereotypes, prejudice, self-hate, rebellion, even all the above, right? Again, I feel like this is a very ignorant pattern of thinking. And I feel like it's particularly dangerous considering the people who identify most strongly with their racial or ethnic group tend not to be people who end up in interracial relationships anyway. True story. Like if you identify really strongly as black or Hispanic or Asian or whatever, you may actually prefer to be with someone of the same racial or ethnic background. In other words, you may be getting a subset of racial minorities that are in interracial relationships and don't identify with all the lived experiences of their peers who ended up dating someone of the same racial uh, background. Again, I think using people in interracial relationships to champion diversity and inclusion efforts is a bad idea for lots of different reasons. It's not random who ends up in interracial relationships. And those people aren't necessarily representative uh, of people of their racial background. There are so many other things on this topic that I'd like to mention that I clearly do not have time for. Um, I didn't mention anything on colorism. That is a huge behemoth. Uh, but one of the artifacts of white supremacy is that lighter complexion skin is perceived as more attractive than darker complexion skin. This is a global phenomenon. This is not conjecture. This has been demonstrated again and again and again in management, in sociology, in psychology, even in economics. Like This is a well-documented and well-studied uh, you know, well pattern. Realistically, it means lighter complexion people have more opportunities for interracial dating and dating in general than darker complexion people. Moreover, although colorism is a global phenomenon that affects both men and women, it seems to disadvantage women more than it does men. Again, that's a whole different conversation, but that's you know kind of rooted in this notion of Eurocentric beauty ideals and how it affects men and women differently. Anyway, I um, also didn't mention anything about how people can fetishize and romanticize interracial dating like it's a popular restaurant and the entire world needs to know that you've been or you want to go. <laughs> like, what? Again, I think people can step into this with some weird motives. Um, I also think people can like use interracial dating as a means of virtue signaling, but that's a whole different conversation. Like, you don't need to 
date me or some other black dude just so people know that you're not racist or that you're woke. Like that's that's really weird and it makes me feel uncomfortable, but you know, I'm gonna move on. Um, also, I didn't talk about how America generally celebrates culture, but black culture is stigmatized and devalued because of racial hierarchy and anti-black sentiment. Hair is viewed negatively, speech is viewed negatively, even being into black culture can be viewed negatively. Again, this has downstream consequences for interracial dating because, uh, you know, especially if you identify strongly as black, a black man or a black woman, disciple or otherwise, people may see you uh, as, a, as a less suitable romantic partner. There is a lot to unpack, and this is really just grazing the surface. To be clear, I don't have any qualms with anyone who's in interracial relationships. That's awesome. I'm happy for you. Seriously, like, you know, amen. God bless the relationship. Uh, my entire point with this piece was simply as follows. I said it before, and I'll say it again just to reiterate. Interracial relationships in a church aren't really a great measure of inclusivity, racial equity, diversity, climate, etc. I literally cringe when I see it being used as such. We got to stop that. Like, for real, for real. Your friendly neighborhood scientists. Uh, we'll be back with part two later this month. So um, feel free to weigh in. Feel free to share. Love you guys.